Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, September the 19th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Last week's removal of housing protesters from the Umbrella Group Take Back the City from a building on Dublin's North Frederick Street by private contractors who were wearing balaclavas was an action which was attended by a number of Gardaí whose faces were also obscured by hoods, a practice which was subsequently criticised by the brand new Garda Commissioner Drew Harris. And since then there have been complaints about the way in which the protesters were treated on the day, and while Gardaí are investigating investigating alleged threats on social media to one of the officers who was on duty there. Take Back the City has now taken over another building in Dublin's north inner city and today our political editor Pat Leahy and I are joined in studio by two of the activists involved, Ashling Bruin from the Housing and Homeless Coalition and Ushin Vince Coulter who's president of Trinity College Dublin's Graduate Students Union. First of all, I asked Ashling how she became involved in this movement. Well, I suppose like the movement came after my involvement with Dublin Central Housing Action so that was a, a grassroots group. It would have stemmed back from Apollo. I'd volunteered to do one or two shifts in Apollo. And just for the benefit of our listeners, that's the Apollo House occupation Apollo just House. across the road, which is funny. You look across there now and it's entirely gone, the yeah, building which crazy. was occupied last yeah. year. Yeah, um, yeah so um, I'd, I'd done a few shifts there. And I know that the guys from Dublin Central House National were heavily involved in Apollo, but I'd kind of only came in. And, and, and didn't really get get to grips on on like the structures and dynamics and stuff like that. Like I was pretty much there, but it was chaos. Um, it was very busy. Uh, there was a lot of volunteers coming through. And why so, did you get involved? I just seen a call go out. Um, I suppose I c- come from a social care background myself. I've studied social care. Um, I've had my own issues with housing. Like myself, I'm I'm a care leaver. Um, I would have been homeless at 16 myself. So I suppose the, the cause was quite co- close to my heart at the time. And I decided then, um, I'd, I'd done a few shifts, um, but kind of got lost within the, the vastness of it and then didn't really know pretty much my, my place there. So the, Apollo had dissolved in, in the manner that it did. And I think a few months later then, I Dublin Central Housing Action put out a call for volunteers and me being a big formal head thought I needed to send a CV so I sent in a CV to a grassroots group and I still get I still get a bit of stick over that now um, but um, we st- I started going to their support group every week and um, just pretty much learning things um, to do with rent increases they have a support space every Friday where people who are having um, issues with housing can drop in. So it's a tenants' rights, tenants' support organisation. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. And, and and pretty like it's it's largely support. And um, sometimes yeah. there are people come in and they have a case, and like it's kind of the honestness of of saying to people, well, actually, we've never had this before. We don't know how to deal with it, but we can maybe work through it together, and we can support each other. And what um, kind of cases were you seeing in that group and dealing with? We were getting a lot of stuff in from emergency accommodation, from different private um, emergency. Accommodations, the B and Bs and hotels. One of the big kind of cases that we were we were helping was the Gresham when the Gresham was closing its emergency beds in the hotel. And then you'd get odd cases as well with, with tenants. 
um, we would have been involved with with Paul Howard and the students in Mount Joy. That was Paul Howard, who there were a number of stories about earlier yeah. this year about the treat. He's a landlord of multiple properties, I yeah, think, yeah, and the yeah. way in which he was treating his his tenants. Yeah. yeah, and it was interesting to see, I suppose, the difference between how you can come in and support tenants versus how you can come in and support people in emergency accommodation. We were finding a lot more barriers when it came to the emergency accommodation side. It's quite difficult. It's a little bit more difficult to organise um, as well with families and people, individuals living in emergency accommodation. I suppose it's the resistance from the services to even correspond with you. Also, there there would be different um, social needs and, and um, issues there with, with some, not all, families living in emergency accommodation. And because it's that little bit more kind of crisis, it, it's quite hard to get a, a, a group, a cohesive group formed. And Is there also an issue at all that, you know, in tenants' rights, we know aren't great in this country, but it's probably very unclear what the rights are yeah. of people in emergency yeah. accommodation. There was an emergency accommodation only a few days ago where there was a dispute, an internal dispute. And also two weeks ago, um, we were called to help in, in the Regency Hotel. There was, well, it's called RNG, I suppose, there, there are rooms there. But there was an internal dispute as well with the, the manager and a family there. And similar, the, the hostel in town on Gardner Street, there was a dispute between a staff member and the family. And what you find is that in the private emergency accommodations, while uh, the Dublin Regional Homeless Executive has all the policies and best practice procedures in the world, and they look great on paper, they're not necessarily standardised across all emergency accommodations. So the hubs are quite formalised. So too are the kind of dominant NGOs, McFerry, Simon, Focus. And that's probably because they're, they're, they're getting state funding sure. and there's more of a... Of a but if it's a private yeah. operator running a and b or a hotel yeah. or whatever, it might be yeah. less Yeah, and so. a, lot, a lot of the staff in there, um, in, in the B&Bs, would be basically when that B&B was, was closing down and, and then the Dublin Regional Homes Executive decided that they'd licence with this B&B. You don't really get any trained social care staff in there. It's the same B&B staff that maybe mm. wouldn't have a, a great capacity of, of working with people of, of from different backgrounds. So there is disputes that are happening um, and it's very important for those policies to be implemented across the whole the whole system. Well, Sheen, I just want to bring you in as well. I mean, you come from a somewhat different perspective or place originally, I suppose, which is Trinity. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> sli- oh! slightly different <laughs> perspective. So yeah, I guess my background leading up immediately to my involvement in the housing movement would be that I was involved in Take Back Trinity, which was the kind of occupation student protest that happened in Trinity towards the beginning of the summer there, just before the exams. And you know, that, that kind of happened and we won. And that was in relation to new fees being introduced for repeat exams, is that right? Yeah, although it is important to note, and it's something I think that kind of got overlooked a bit at the time, it was also about increases in the rent that the college wanted to charge for accommodation, uh, which does link directly into how the housing crisis is affecting everyone, it's affecting see migrants, people in emergency accommodation, and students. Mm. So some of our members had actually been involved in DCHA and Dublin Central Housing Action. And in the aftermath of Take by Trinity, when you had all of these people who were kind of newly active and looking for stuff, and people particularly in the aftermath of repeal, which a lot of people were involved in kind of looking around, and we said, well, look, you know, we are students, we are young people, we are affected by this housing crisis, and... DCHA offered us the opportunity to get involved and we came down. There were a series of housing forums and meetings, not that we fell into it, but we kind of ended up actually taking a, I would say, I don't think Ashley would disagree with me on this, quite a central role that students have been really at the heart of this 
movement uh, for the last number of weeks. And can I ask you, in relation to that, how much of that, this may be an impossible question to answer and say so if it is, how much of that is about um, students um, being politically engaged and feeling solidarity with their fellow citizens who are perhaps in more unfortunate circumstances economically than most, most students in Trinity are, or how much of it is about the fact that students and undergraduates and graduates in Trinity are facing exactly the same problems themselves in their personal lives and getting somewhere to live. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's like a, a complete dichotomy where it's like yeah. you either just feel pure solidarity or you're affected. I think there is a wide spectrum and there is a bit of a misconception, I think, that the media often has that like, oh, posh students, posh Trinity students, posh whatever students. And obviously there is, you know, uh, middle class students in Trinity. There is also quite a lot of people who will come from more disadvantaged backgrounds, people that are in Trinity on SUSE grants. Over 30% of undergraduate students in Trinity are on some form of grant. You have the TAP program, you have you know, mature students, people who themselves may well be facing homelessness or have faced homelessness. There is a very wide range of experience among the student body, and I think that's very representative in those students who then go on to be involved in these things. But there is also, obviously, yeah, people who have been, and Una Malali, I know, in, in this newspaper did mention it, people who were politicised through marriage equality, people who were politicised through repeal, who really aren't willing to accept the dominant narrative of Irish society that things just are the way they are, that things are never going to change, that there's no point in, in ever doing anything because, you know, you're just wasting your time. People who grew up in the aftermath of the recession and really just aren't happy with the fact that, to a large degree, their future has been sold down the river. Okay. So you have this movement which is partly mobilised, as you say, by the, uh, this action earlier this year. Is what happened then first in Summerhill Parade in early August, is that, a, is that an immediate outgrowth of that? Did that, that? Were you guys looking for an opportunity like that or is that a spontaneous reaction to something that happened on the ground? Just so people know, Summerhill Parade, as far as I know, was a, I think there's a number of buildings there just as you're going out to town through Ballybock just before you hit the canal. Um, they were overcrowded with, I think, largely Brazilian tenants and then the buildings were vacated due to an order from the fire officers. And it was at that point, I'm right in saying, that, that you guys occupied one of the buildings there? The occupation, I suppose, came a little bit after that. I can't remember exactly the month of when the students were um, evicted. And it was predominantly students. A lot of them were in the English language schools and stuff like that. With the eviction, like obviously there was all of a sudden 120 people that were evicted with no recourse. Nothing came down on the landlord um, and, and that was quite frustrating for all of us. Dublin Central Housing kind of regrouped and we stayed in touch with a handful of tenants that did want us to keep in touch. Um, a lot a lot of people kind of just was like a bit deflated and, and that was that, like we didn't hear from them again. Um, but uh, a handful of of tenants did stay in contact and we were kind of talking about maybe putting in some kind of proposal of best practice to the fire department and potentially to the guards as well because sometimes at these evictions we we get this kind of oh this is a civil matter and it's like well not really it's 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 a human matter like we're like how can you morally kick 120 people out onto the streets the the excuse and a, a lot of landlords are are using this excuse is is the middle layer it's the sublet and they kind of say oh we don't know about the conditions that that were in the house it's like well it's your house and you're renting it so you should have the responsibility and the onus should be on the owner and the landlord to and what is the exactly. situation under the law who, who does bear the responsibility 
that's that's the thing. I think it's grey. Like we, the landlord has got away with blaming the subletter in that circumstance. We don't think that should that should be the case. So I suppose we we had a few meetings and we everybody kind of felt deflated and we were like, right, what can what can we do? We we felt that there was a, a bit of lull with regards to to housing. We, we could we could feel kind of tension and, and people were asking us like, uh, can we not do something or can, can we escalate this now a little bit? And we got some groups together. Initially, I think there was maybe four, five or six. We, we got in touch with um, the students of Take Back, um, Take Back Trinity and we asked them to be involved. And um, we kind of sat and we were like, right, what, what, what can we do? And we were talking about different forms of direct action and the, the group had, had previously been involved in, in Apollo, as was mentioned, Apollo House, and mm. also in the Bolt Hostel. So when we were discussing an occupation and going forward with an occupation and what that would look like and what the narrative would be and and who we would be targeting we had reflected on Apollo and the Bolt Hostel and that had been open for homeless people to live in Um, but we knew this time that we wanted to target pretty much the private sector and and vacant houses and with with that um, can come court orders quite quickly and potentially as was seen in Frederick Street kind of intimidating violent evictions so we didn't necessarily want to open it up as a space for people to live in it was going to be a little bit more strategic in the sense that we wanted a space where we could potentially run different kind of training Um, so know your rights training for tenants family fun days something to kind of connect the community it would be a space and and a hub where we could go door knocking and did it work out like that or in summer hill i think it it, it really embodied that in the first one the second then then the last two moves have been quite quick yeah so you were cleared you were in summer hill for quite a while and then you were cleared i'm not sure if evicted is quite the right word because you were tenants but you were cleared by the people acting on behalf of half of the owners and then you moved on to did you move on immediately to north frederick street moved on immediately to north frederick Mm. street and then there there was this, a short period of holding two occupations, which was Frederick Street and Belvedere Place. Mm. Um, but I suppose, yeah, the, the aim was that um, it would be a rolling occupation. So with Summerhill, that was always our, our focus. The focus, that, like as in like we wanted, that was going to be the first one. We really did want that to be the first one, mainly because the ownership, of the property wasn't clear. So in Ireland, we have, you don't have to register your property for two years. And what we're seeing is that there's a lot of properties that are vacant and a lot of properties that are being leaded out that have this kind of grey area when it comes to ownership. And it seems that the house is selling every every two years on paper when really that's not the case. You have maybe a landlord putting the, the house into a family member's name when we talk about, like, I suppose, the the legalities of, of what we're doing and the occupations, that should be illegal as well. Like, that's kind of... Yeah, uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come to the, to, to the legality of the of the actions. But let me ask you, um, maybe, maybe you, Oisin, I mean, a lot of this activity is happening in what's essentially the Dublin Central constituency, the, uh, the north inner city for the most part. Now, we know that these problems apply, you know, in... in other parts of the country and certainly in other parts of Dublin further out. But is there something in particular in the north inner city? I walk through the north inner city every day and it seems to be there's a mix. It's almost like a distillation of everything that's wrong with with housing in Ireland from derelict sites to empty buildings to overcrowded buildings stuffed with migrant workers to inadequate social housing to a preponderance of emergency accommodation. You can see all that within a 10-minute walk of 
of of one spot in yeah I mean, I mean you did you kind of summed up everything i was going to say there oh sorry about anyway. that. <laughs> but it is it's true it's like you walk down any main road in the north inner city and you see all of that you will see decaying social housing that hasn't been maintained that hasn't really been built on or properly resourced by the council right next to essentially i'm just going to say it, it's slum conditions tenement conditions often in buildings that were tenements 100 years ago and are tenements again that are just being filled with as, as many people, primarily migrants, as the landlord can, can get into them, uh, right next to a shiny new student block that has been dumped down right into the middle of a community without really any kind of consultation with that community. I mean, you would just have every element of the housing crisis in Ireland distilled into one relatively small area. So it, it was a very obvious target, I think. Uh, Does it also make it um, more amenable to direct political action? Because you can, you know, you can, for example call a crowd together quite quickly if there's a flashpoint of some sort because everybody's within, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, you know, there's a the concentrated population more perhaps than you could if you were out in West Dublin. Well, not necessarily. I think that anywhere that these actions would take place, we would probably have quite a lot of community support. Mm. And that's something that we've seen. We saw it in Summerhill. We saw it in North Frederick Street. Uh, the people who live nearby, those that we've been in contact with, when we have done door knocking, when we've done community work, are by and large overwhelmingly in support of what we're doing and are willing to come out. But I actually think if we were occupying a house out in Tala or Blanchardstown or indeed Kulak, there would be similar amounts of support because this isn't specifically localised just to the north inner city or just to West Dublin. Probably if we went down to Cork, and I can't speak for the activists down in Cork, but this is a crisis that stretches across the length and breadth of the island. Well, I, want to, I want to bring in Pat here because Pat, what, it, what, what, what these particular actions do seem to have is a symbolic resonance and a media profile which distills a lot of these issues which we know have been floating around for, for, for many years now but seems to have kind of brought them to the fore in, a, in an activist way that we haven't, seen, we haven't seen previously. It seems to me that these the occupations, they're essentially to draw attention to the situation. They're not designed to provide accommodation for people. They're to draw attention to the scale of the problem and how the problem has permeated, you know, all levels of society. I mean, you talk about, you know, students becoming involved uh, in it. But, you know, students who are not based in Dublin come to Dublin are you know, uh, scratching around for accommodation. That's not just a problem for, you know, students who have, you know, time on their hands for political action. It's a problem for their parents, uh, most of whom are paying for most of uh, uh, their kids' accommodation uh, and so forth. But what I want to ask the lads is, what, what is the ultimate, you know, your ultimate object from the occupations? Is it simply to raise awareness or do you have like a programme that you want to see adopted or what, what's the, the, the pathway to solving the problem as far as you're so, concerned? Um, well, I suppose the strategy one would be that where it's a vacant house with, with grey ownership, um, if the owner wants the occupants out, they're going to have to put their name down on a court order. That's kind of the first thing. And it's that kind of like public outing of an unknown um, owner who is either sitting on vacant properties for a number of years or has kicked out 120 tenants from a house or a number of houses. Then with each occupation comes the three main demands. So the demand that we, we keep pushing, and it's, it's probably our main demand, is that this is this, these are vacant houses. They've been vacant for this amount of period. We are highlighting that the council has the ability to compulsory purchase order vacant houses Um, if they have the will and the initiative to do so. Uh, We were very aware that the 
like by putting out that demand, the council probably probably won't do that. But what we wanted to do was just highlight it. We wanted to get it out there. And we can see now, you had pointed out to us when we came into the studio that compulsory purchase of houses proposed, that's that's out in the news now today. Um, so that's that was one demand and, and, and that's caught on. And people who haven't necessarily heard about compulsory purchase orders now probably know what that is, which is good. Um, the Mind second, you, the legislation has been there for a long time, but it's about it's about the implementation and the use yeah. of that legislation yeah. as opposed to changing the law. It's about political and administrative will. will. Yeah. Administrative yeah. as much as political, and I think cases. Dublin, Dublin actually is is probably the the slowest um, or making the least amount of orders. Um, I, I somebody passed a comment to me the other day that um, other other counties are better at implementing yeah. um, these orders um, than Dublin City Council. Um, CPO sixty houses apparently in the last year to use for public housing. Right, so it's clearly possible to do it. Yeah, it's just for whatever reason Dublin City Council has no interest in doing it. And in many cases, I suppose, in Dublin, because the properties are more valuable, the owners have a greater interest in, uh, in, in the land. holding yeah, on to them. Yeah. Um, and then the second demand then would be public housing on public land. And we can see, I suppose, with the majority vote in the council the other day to halt that sale on, on the laundry. It's on top of Dermot Street. Um, Sean McDermott Street, Magdalene Laundry, yes. Um, well, the former laundry. But um, I think that councillors now are starting to, and, and, and uh, society at large, is, is starting to realise actually how valuable public land is. So it's, it's pushing that out there again and, and really drilling that into people's minds that like we have very limited public land left and once it's sold, it's left our democratic hands. We have no control over that. And to get it back is probably going to be a hell of a lot more expensive than what we sold it for. And our last demand then is regarding rent caps. Rent controlled by the market and it's spiralling out of control. We're all struggling. We're all very much like crippled with, with paying extortionate rent prices. Our call would be that the rent would be capped in conjunction with people's wages. Like the reality is is that people are probably paying nearly 60, maybe 70% of their rent in, in some cases or their income um, on rent, leaving very limited amounts of money for like even even bills. Um, like myself, I, I'm, I'm struggling to like I'm, I'm looking at my wages come in today and like literally all of that is leaving my account today. Probably going to have to ask for a lend from a friend. But like we need livable rents. We need rents that we can, we can I suppose, work with. Um, so we're asking for a cap on rents at um, 30% of um, people's income. So that that would be our, our kind of three specific demands and we'll, we'll keep trying to push them. When that, would, we- that would mean though that... that- People who are landlords right now would have to cut, in some cases, the rent which they're Major. currently being paid yeah. by 50 or 60%. And I'm sure that in some cases they'd say that would send them to the wall. I do actually think there's, there's a bit of a myth that's going around. And it, it is kind of perpetrated a bit by particularly certain politicians of this kind of, oh, the middle class family who just kind of fell into owning a second property that they're lending out. Like the reality is every one of the properties that we've gone after and indeed swathes of the properties that are worst when it comes to high rents, to slum conditions, are either international vulture funds or they are massive commercial landlords, people who own 5, 10, 15, 20 properties. They aren't going to the wall with rent caps. They aren't going to the wall with CPOs. These are people who are making huge amounts of money hand over fist at the moment with our massively overvalued market. Like No one is going to be put out into the street by taking reasonable measures to end this crisis. 
Pat, how do you think this is going to play out? Because this is, in a way, a crystallization of something which, uh, we've talked about this before, for the current political establishment, the current government, it's probably the most fraught problem and the, and the, the biggest political threat uh, and the biggest challenge um, over the next couple of years. Is, yeah, and does a movement like this and actions like this, does it, perhaps in a way like the water protest, crystallise it as a political issue in a way it wasn't been done previously? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a possibility. I mean, it is at the very top of the government's agenda. Housing and health are the two issues that you will hear hammered again and again and again by the opposition. They will dominate the forthcoming election campaign whenever uh, whenever that uh, whenever that comes, and that's because it is, as we discussed earlier, a problem, a widespread problem in society. It's a corrosive problem for society. The aftermath, the property boom, which nobody, of course, complains about, but actually that is the, you know, the, the it, rapidly rising house prices everywhere. It's what happened uh, in, in this country in, in two waves, the most recent one and the one which preceded uh, the crash, always end up with massive social problems. And the biggest problem here, as everybody says, is the, uh, is the shortage of supply. And everybody says, in answer to that, well, build more houses. The difficulty with that is, A, it's not as simple as that, and, and B, building houses takes time. But there are other issues here, and there may be a vested interest, like the reference to... Can I, can to, I actually come in on that? Because because I've, I've heard this so often. And yes, building houses takes time, it takes money, it's difficult. If local government, national government, had decided to embark upon a programme of mass building of public housing two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, when we could see that this was coming down the line, we would not be in this situation right now. I wouldn't be sitting in this room, no occupations would have happened. And the idea that it's impossible when... Most Western European governments embarked on their programs of public housing in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War when they had extremely tight budgets and yet managed to build the swathes of Dublin that people live in today. Crumlin was built when the Irish government was a lot less wealthy. No one one is saying it's impossible, though, but it is something that takes time and takes takes steps. And one of the problems, of course, in, in... you know, in leaving absolutely everything to the whim of the market is two or three years ago at the point when uh, you correctly are identifying had there been a programme of house building then you wouldn't have this problem at the moment. But two or three years ago, the big problem uh, in the Dublin property market was there was an absence of office space and there was huge money to be made building offices. And it's not as if the construction industry isn't going flat out. If you look around the city and look at the look at the amount of cranes that are around, look at the amount of construction just sites. just building the wrong kind of stuff building, to solve the problem we're talking like, yeah, about here. But they're building that in relation to market forces. And Underneath all this, underneath all this problem, aside from the kind of the technical workings out of it, is this difficulty of the balance of private property versus public good or public need. And that is a debate that is not unique to Ireland. I think there's a rebalancing of that going on all over uh, in, in, in loads of Western countries. It accounts for, you know, in many respects, the popularity of Jeremy Corbyn's left wing, lurch to the left of the Labour Party. If you look at, like, uh, if you look at loads of Corbyn's policies about house building and public ownership of utilities, all that sort of thing, they're immensely popular in, uh, uh, in the UK. And that, in a way, is a reaction to, you know, the, the kind of 20 or 30 year bull run that market forces and capital has had in, in Western countries. And I think we're seeing 
that that is what we were that's what we we're seeing here. So while the you know the ostensible problem is a shortage of housing, it's it is much, the reaction much, to that much, is much part of that. a challenge to the system. And I think that that is won't go away with uh, with a program of house building. Right, our, there's tapping of watches going on behind our desk there. So we will leave it there. But listen, thanks very much for coming in, guys. Yeah. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks very much. So, Pat, I suppose the question um, for you in particular is um, what are the specific pressure points that the uh, that the government is going to feel and is it likely to feel more of them because of the kind of thing we've just been discussing? Yeah, I think it is likely to feel greater pressure on that because the media focus on this, it's in the doll every day. It's a, it's a chronic social problem and, you know, it's difficult to imagine how the government wouldn't feel pressure uh, on that. On the other hand, uh, it, it, it is, I, I think that... Until such time as there is, you know, viable policy alternatives, worked out policy alternatives to the approach the government is taking, which is essentially to have lots of lots of tweaks and try to ramp up uh, and try to ramp up supply. It, it is government has, you know, not a great deal of power or influence over the two big dynamics, uh, uh, demand and supply that are causing the, the homeless crisis. But it um uh, uh, until until such time as you know, uh, as they introduce, and there you see pressure from Sinn Fein and that greater curbs on landlords. There is a cultural reluctance on that in Fine Gael, but there's also the economic rationale that they believe that further curbs on landlords are are um, you know further rent caps that. Taking policy well, push back slightly that on that. Is it not true that Fine Gael... Well, let me finish the point first. They believe the economic case for that is that that uh, pushes landlords out of the um, uh, pushes landlords out of the sector. And I think there is a case to be made for that. Because um, I had a discussion with uh, Pascal Donoghue a couple of weeks ago and he was critical of people who suggested that um, parties at the centre-right like Fine Gael were driven by ideology, whereas parties at the left were driven by ideas. But this seems to be, to be a fairly fundamental part of a centre-right party such as Fine Gael, which is that they are more sympathetic to the interests of the uh, property-owning classes and therefore the people, some of the people who we were discussing, uh, the property-owning classes, uh, just, just before the break. Well, I think you have to make a distinction between and, the property-owning classes, as you call them, and property uh, and, and landlords. Well, I, 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 and I would add to that a column by David McWilliams last weekend, where he talked about essentially what he called, talked about the kind of vandalism of our urban fabric by speculators sitting on land and letting properties go derelict because of hoarding, because that's incentivized by the way we have managed to set up. Yeah, and that is some. Yeah, and, and and that is something that a mixture, perhaps, of, uh, of 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 cultural resistance to impinging on property property rights within, which is strong throughout the Irish system, frankly. Frankly, um, I mean, it's 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 different now because it's been a professionalisation of landlordism in a way. But for many years, you know, the people that typically students were renting their bedsits off them weren't multinational property owners. Uh, they were, you know, they were uh, guards uh, with with uh, you know with a couple of flats in Rathmines. But um, but I, I think you know you, you always have to in analyzing these social problems in Ireland you also have to uh, factor in just the the importance of official indolence in dealing with the problem we have a chronically we've we've a system of local and national government that is chronically slow to move um particularly i guess against 
you know, well-entrenched vested interests, the profession, the property-owning classes, as you, uh, uh, as, uh, as you refer to them as. And, uh, and I think that is simply, you know, that's simply a reality. Now, that should, it should be possible to overcome that. Uh, and I think you will see additional political pressure on this government to, over, to, you know, to overcome both that official indolence, but also its own ideological and cultural reflex. Maybe one way to address this, at least symbolically, is to uh, appoint some trusting entrepreneur with television profile to the office of the presidency, where they can, you know, they can look forward. There's a lot of looking forward at the moment, I gather. I was re- reading uh, interviews with, with Sean Gallagher. Um, over the last 24 hours. Everybody's looking forward. They're even moving forward, which I thought was a phrase had been banned, but it's back again. Well, forward is better than back. Uh, really? I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> um, three dragons. Is that not, does that not illustrate the absurdity of this contest? My congratulations on a niche segue to, uh, <laughs> to discuss the presidential election. Yes, three dragons. Um, Peter Casey... Uh, got in earlier this week um, uh, to, you know, to, to people looking in from the outside. The would, real world. Yeah, you, you would say, uh, well, outside the country, if you were to explain to them that, you know, of the six candidates for the, the highest ceremonial office uh, in, in the country, three of them come from the one reality TV show, mm. they would think, you know, they could be forgiven for thinking that's a bit absurd. Uh, what is that? From inside, could, have, could have got somebody from one of the dancing shows, at least. From, 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 from inside the country, quite frankly, it looks even more absurd. Uh, uh, I find myself at a significant disadvantage in political commentary, uh, having never seen Dragon's Den. But clearly, uh, I'll have to watch some old episodes if I'm going to uh, correctly and, and adequately cover this uh, presidential campaign. But there we are. Um, well, you know, one of the problems in 2016 was none of the hoity-toity uh, coastal elites who work for the newspapers had ever watched The Apprentice. So they didn't realise the attraction of the candidate in question. And, and there you are, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're lurching towards the same mistake uh, ourselves. Polls would suggest that Michael D is untouchable. There was a poll at the weekend in the Sunday Business Post that put him at 67%. He's been at that sort of level for about a year, 18 months in polls, some of which have been done by this newspaper. One word of caution, though, while Michael D is clearly odds-on uh, favourite, uh, uh, odds-on favourite to win it, uh, c- campaigns have different dynamics. Campaign polls are different to peacetime polls. There will be different and unforeseeable dynamics in this presidential election campaign. Could they possibly be powerful enough to derail Michael D? That seems most unlikely. But the reason that we, uh, uh, the, the reason that we have election campaigns, we have elections, is to allow people to evaluate candidates, change their mind, make up their mind. There's a fairly uh, well-established history of presidential campaigns, to say nothing of other sorts of campaigns is a well-established history of presidential campaigns lurching all over themselves. This one is different to the ones that they went uh, that, that that went before, but you may be sure that it will still have unforeseen uh, it will have unforeseen developments one way or the other. Finally, uh, we had a back to school episode about three weeks ago, but the Oireachtas is actually back to school. It operates to a different rhythm from the rest of from, from the rest of the country. The rest uh, of school children. Yes, uh, this week, um, what's the general mood? Um, I think the question on everybody's lips really is the future of the government. Um, uh, Brexit is overshadowing everything that the government is doing. There's a summit in Salzburg in Austria beginning uh, beginning this evening. The really decisive uh, stage of the Brexit negotiations will come next month, the month uh, the month after that, when we will it will become clear, I think, whether we're heading for a deal or no deal. 
and there's a and, all, and also what that uh, deal might mean for in terms of the, the backstop, indeed, the yeah, Irish border, all, and so all, 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 all that will become uh, will become apparent. The budget is to come on October the 9th. That's trundling away behind the scenes, but really. The main topic on everybody's lips in Leinster House is, will the government last after the budget? Are we heading for an election later this year or early next year? And that question, I think, won't be answered until after the budget when Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil sit down to discuss an extension of the, uh, of the confidence and supply. The tension within Fianna Fáil on that question? There is. My colleague Fiek Kelly was reporting on this uh, during the week that it's the view of, you know, several front bench members uh, in Fianna Fáil that, you know, there is there really anything in this for, uh, uh, in an extension for Fianna Fáil? Why should they give Fianna Gael another year or two more years in government? And were they to do so, would that not amount to a... Uh, an endorsement of the current administration and how then would Fianna Fáil oppose and criticise uh, that government and there's logic to that. That having been said, they all admit that this will be Micheál Martin's uh, decision to make. I don't think any decision can really be made until the decisive point in Brexit comes and we see what is going to happen, uh, whether there's going to be a deal, whether you're going to head for a crash-out Brexit uh, in March of next year. Until that becomes clear, I think... Uh, you can't have a decision on an election. But once that point is reached, and it may be reached in October, it may be reached in the middle of November, then uh, the question of an election really, uh, uh, really comes to the fore. No shortage of drama ahead. Pat, thanks very much for coming in. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks very much to our producer Jennifer Ryan and engineer JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider may be. You can always contact me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter and you can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. See you the next time.